Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 for an opening thought that we want to revolve around. Entering into 2012, this new year, at least in my thoughts, the Lord has been directing towards the church, our congregation. I think I already offered the challenge a few days back about thinking about this coming year and what you can do for the Lord in the context of our congregation. I'd like to review a message that Brother Jonathan preached April 16, 2006. I'll be sending a copy of my notes, but I'll give you the link to his notes because I've just taken and clipped out a few little things out of it that, I, that struck me. And we're going to go over tonight the vast bulky detail that can be good and profitable for everybody to go over. You can find out in his outline. Before I go on, young men, I have been trying to give you a little bit of an example over the past few weeks. I have not mined any new material for myself. I have made a point of going back to outlines and plucking out things and going over them. Once you know the truth and you understand it, brethren, you don't have to invent new things. Most of us will never have to come up with new things because we're not pastors. We're not bishops. Our job is going to be taking material that we've already been taught in one form or another, preparing it for our souls as men, for our wives and our sisters, and for our children. So there's nothing wrong with having to go back to somebody else's work. That is the biblical pattern. Okay? Let me make it plain. That is the biblical pattern. It ain't hard to do. Can you find our website? Can you click through a couple of slots and find where the sermons are? There's a ton of material there that you can get. And that's more than a lifetime's worth. I know because I've been here the whole time. And I've been studying that stuff. And I constantly have to go back and relearn things that in it. So you'll never... It'll never get old. Let, let me, you know, whatever New Eastland's word's worth, it'll never get old. It's fun looking at it and being refreshed by it often. Now, to our topic. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Here Paul writing to who? Timothy. Timothy. Don't, don't be afraid to interact. I'm going to ask you a few questions to help you out. That's part of learning, right? Is to actually, you know, if you know the answer, doesn't matter to, you know, help me out with it occasionally. Timothy. Who was Timothy? Was he just a member somewhere in some church? He's a bishop. Yeah. He's a pastor of a congregation that Paul had taught. Look at what Paul instructs another minister in regarding the congregation, the church. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself... In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Brethren, I want us to get a better appreciation, a reminding for hopefully most of us, but hopefully a better appreciation for what we have here. What is the church? 
It's more than just, what is it, 82 of us, 83 of us, I think, on the membership roll and however many other we have in attendance on a Sunday. It's more than that. It's more than just this building and this piece of property that we come to Sundays and Wednesday nights to meet at and other occasions. The church is something that's very important. And we need to know that. We need to know how, where it came from. Why it's important. How can we maintain it as God expects it to be maintained? Because notice, first of all, what is the church in this passage? It's God's house. The house of God. Brethren, this isn't, we've said it before, but this is not the Jonathan Crosby show. It's not the Newell Eastland or the Jeff Oley or the Nathan Crosby or anybody else's name we want to put to it. It's, this is the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why it's important. That's why we've got to be careful how we conduct ourselves here. This is the place where God, as we'll see in a few moments, reveals His truth. This is a world full of error and ignorance and the most important Issues of life and eternity are dealt with in this venue. In congregations just like this. The pillar and ground of the truth. What's a pillar? Any architectural students or engineering students can help me out? What's a pillar? That's a column. It's something that stands upright and helps support a structure. Right? Whether it's a building or a bridge or some other structure. The church is the pillar. It upholds the truth. That's our job as a congregation. To hold up the truth. It's the ground. It's that on which the truth stands. The truth of God, brethren. Not mine, not yours, not our pastors. God's truth. That is what we are here to hold up and represent. That's important. That, that puts, that, I hope that starts to put things in a different light for you. Where does it come from? Where does this truth that we're upholding come from? Is it stuff that we make up? You know, do we have a random phrase generator that we generate, you know, things to say, oh, this is what we're going to stand for today and we're going to have? No. God gives truth. The Lord gives truth to whom he will. And men should be thankful for it. Think about Jacob over in Genesis chapter 32. I will turn to some passages, others I'm going to refer you to. For the sake of time, and hopefully, so you'll go do some homework. So you'll check me out and say, well, did Newell get that right? Don't ever be afraid of checking out anybody who stands up here before you. That's part of your job. We'll get to that in a minute. But Genesis chapter 30 32 and verse 10. Here Jacob prays to God, verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidest unto me, Return unto thy country and unto thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. This was his prayer. Years later, after he had left 
as he said, with nothing but the cloak on his back and the staff in his hand, to go to find refuge, first of all, from brother, who was upset with him, and a wife under Laban's household. He comes back, two wives and a bunch of kids. Actually, four wives and a bunch of kids, right? And a bunch of herds to take care of them all. But notice what he says. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Right. Now how much, did Abra- how much did Jacob have at that point? Did Jacob even have Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis. He didn't even have, Gen- he didn't even have Genesis. Much less the Pentateuch. Much less the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, the Histor... We've got it all, brethren. We've got it all. If there's anybody who ought to be thankful to God, it's us. Because He's shown so much of His truth to us. Truth only comes from God by His gracious mercy. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 2 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, Paul tells the Thessalonians, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Whole sermon can be preached there. You'll have to get it some other time. My point here is notice, God gave truth to the Thessalonians. The word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. God gives truth. And it's a mercy when he gives it to you. Yes. And what are we again? As a congregation, as a church, we're the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. We've got it right here that we're holding up. You know God does conceal truth from men. And he reveals it to whom he will. Over in Matthew, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, red writing, Matthew chapter 11, Verses 25 through 27. Here Jesus is praying to the Father. And it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. You know, people that say, God... You know, God's got to give every, everything he, you know you want, right? No, He doesn't. And Jesus was thankful that God didn't give truth to some men. And thankful that He gave it to babes like us. That's the source of truth. It comes from God. God has to give it. It's out of His mercy that He gives it to us. It's a privilege, brethren, not a right. And I know, I'm not saying anything new. I'm repeating phrases you've heard before. As our brother likes to point out, because it's what Scripture points out, that's how we learn, Amen. by having it repeated for us. Mm-hmm. Young people, drill this in your mind because you will not get it outside of these walls. Except hopefully in your households with your dad and your mama reinforcing it. Truth is a privilege, it's not a right. You don't have a right to truth. God graciously gave it to our first parents. And what did they say? I'd rather believe the devil's lie. 
That's what Adam said. Poor Eve was deceived. She got snookered. But Adam was not deceived, Paul tells us. Adam knew what he was doing. And he said, I'd rather have this woman and this fruit than what the Lord said. So see, we don't deserve truth. When it was offered to us at the very beginning, we said, nah, I want to lie. So if God was to be the kind and gentle God that most everybody wants him to be, he'd give us what we want, wouldn't he? Well, many times he does. He gives us lies. It's only by his mercy that he will override us and give us his truth. Once he's overridden our nature so we can accept that truth and understand it. Why is truth important? We see where it's come from. Why is it important? It's the only way you can worship God acceptably. You know, God's not out there just, oh, wishing people would come and worship me. What can I change about the way I do things to make it more acceptable? That's the way you'd think it is with a lot of preachers nowadays, right? But you know what? God does not worry about market surveys to find out what the people want. You know, there was a time when a woman approached our Lord Jesus Christ over in John chapter 4. And after he told her some rather amazing things about her life, she said, well, you know, over here in this mountain is where our fathers of the Samaritans said we're supposed to worship. And you Jews say over there in Jerusalem is when men ought to worship. And this woman, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything. Salvations of the Jews. And the time's coming when neither in that mountain, which is not the place to go, nor in this mountain, which has been the place to go, are men going to find God. God's a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because that's who God looks for. God's only looking for people who are looking to worship Him with the right spirit and in His truth. So see, truth is important. It's not a hit and miss thing that we've got to hold up. That we're supporting here in this congregation. It's God's truth. It's the only acceptable way to approach God. God demands that we worship Him according to His revelation. You know, one of the last things our Lord Jesus Christ did when He sent out His apostles after His resurrection, after they had seen Him a number of days, before He left, what's the thing He did? He told them, go into all nations, baptize, make disciples, and teach them whatsoever things I have taught you. Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20. If they taught what Jesus taught, well, they couldn't teach something different, could they? If they taught everything that Jesus taught, they couldn't leave anything out, could they? That's a rather narrow, prescribed way of doing things. There's not a whole lot of inventiveness in the worship of God when it comes to the core elements. It's the way we put it sometimes, right? It's my way or the highway. That's God. That's God, brethren. You think that's being a little hard? You think that's a little, a little difficult? You know, my way or the highway? I'm being polite. Galatians, turn and look at this one. Galatians chapter 1. Hear what the Apostle Paul had to say about those who he had slight disagreements with. 
in how they talked. I speak with tongue firmly planted in cheek and a lot of irony and sarcasm intended. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And again, who is Paul writing to? Paul is writing to a congregation who he had ministered to, who he'd shown the gospel to, both with the power of miracles that only an apostle could do, and book, chapter, and verse, here a little, there a little, showing them from Scripture what they were to believe. And they departed. They had some smart guys from Jerusalem or other places, smart Jewish ministers coming in and telling them a whole bunch of different things. I marvel, verse 6, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Excuse me, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Pretty strong language. It gets stronger. But though we, it's talking about Paul and the men who ministered to them previously, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong. Paul saying, look, if I and Titus and some of the other brethren were to come back to you and start teaching you differently from what we taught you at the beginning, we should be accursed. A glorious angel from heaven comes down with new revelation and teaches you something differently. He's accursed. That's how serious the truth is. That's how serious the worship. And where is this talking about? This is in a congregation. This is one of these pillars that's supposed to uphold the truth. Like us. As we said before, verse 9, So say I again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Twice in the same passage, Paul says that. That's strong language, brethren. That shows you the importance. The fact that anything is different from what is taught in Scripture, it's under divine curse. At least apostolic curse. And if Paul is speaking for the Lord under inspiration... That makes it a divine curse. What are the threats? What are the threats to being the pillar and ground of the truth that we're supposed to be? You know, from the very beginning. Let's go back to the Old Testament time. Did people ever depart from the faith back then? Oh, yeah. Again, I could multiply out references. I'm going to give you one to look at. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, and again, there'll be a little note at the bottom of this outline that'll point you to the original outline, which has a whole lot of verses. A lot of good verses you ought to go over. I picked out the ones that struck me. Hey, please go check them out. Make sure I'm telling you the right stuff, and then see if there's other verses that maybe strike your heart better. I mean, that's why God wrote a lot, wrote so many different variations of the same thing. Isaiah chapter 59, starting at verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee. This is the prophet Isaiah talking to the Lord. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, Conceiving and uttering from the heart, 
words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward. And justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street. And equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no judgment. Here we're talking about a time when even the man who privately was trying to do what was right, he was a marked man. Everybody else was so given over to their sins and wickedness that just trying to live that private life of a Christian, or a worship of Jehovah in this case, ah, they wouldn't have it. You were a marked man if you didn't run to the same riot of excess, as Paul would say in another place, as they did. So you see, it's not a new thing. Brethren, it shouldn't surprise us when we've come across people, and I'm not talking about out there, in here. Brethren, don't be surprised if people want to turn tail and run, want to go after something new and different. It shouldn't surprise us. It happened back there. Paul, one of our favorite passages, right? The one prophecy that applies to our last days we know of. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 following. What's it say? In the latter times, men shall depart from the faith. Right? And it goes through that whole list of carnal sins. And we know because we've been taught about it, right? That's a carnal form of Christianity. Denies the power thereof. You know, it wants the form of religion, but denies the power thereof. That's the day we live in. But, in case you don't think that's enough, one more verse that should lock it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19. Brother referred to this in the last couple of Sundays. 1 Corinthians 11.19, Paul, and very apropos, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, who were loaded with heresies and deviations from the truth. That's why he had such long epistles and two of them to these folks, because they had a lot of problems there he was trying to clean up. And right in the middle here he tells them, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Brethren, this is a New Testament church. We should expect that over time there's going to be heretics in our midst. In one sense, it's a good thing. Those of us who stay around, who fight the heresy, who don't put up with it, as we'll see in a moment, and get rid of people who want to be heretics, it just proves we're following the right thing. Isn't that what he says? They which are approved among you may be made manifest among you. So we've got threats. Who are the enemies? Brother Jonathan had a long list of them. I'm only going to give you six of them. One, tradition. Doing it like man's always done it. Oh, I'd love to go to it, but I'd get bogged down if I even turned to it. Mark chapter 7, 1 through 13. This is where Jesus Christ deals with the Pharisees. And he tells them, you know, here, it's dear to me, but I, I can see by some heads that it's like, I think I know what you're talking about, Newell, but Mark 7, verse 1. I'm just going to read some highlights of it. Here the Pharisees have come together from Jerusalem. 
His disciples have come out of the field and they started eating. They didn't wash their hands. I know, mamas, that's not the best thing to do, but, you know, occasionally that happens, right? Oh, but not with Pharisees. Because the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. It wasn't for cleanliness sake. It was because the fathers, our elders, told us to do this. It's part of our holiness before God to wash our hands. Please show me the book, chapter, and verse on that. They didn't have it. And when they come from the market, verse 4, except they wash, they eat not. And here's the point. Many other things there be which they have received to hold. Scripture lists some of them. There's others it doesn't list. The point being, when you start finding people who have all these rules and regulations, you've got to keep. And you ask them for book, chapter, and verse, and you get a lot of mumbling. And no quotations of Paul or Peter or James or John. But Brother Samuel or, you know, Brother Edward or something like that. Jesus talking to them, verse 6. Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit... In vain, that's emptiness, do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. See, that's what happens when you add tradition in on an equal plane with Scripture. Tradition wins. Men throw Scripture out before they throw out tradition. Read on. For laying aside the commandment of God, verse 8, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do, The Lord put that in there so we wouldn't just think it's only a matter of dishwashing that was the issue. It's anything you add to Scripture on top of Scripture that's not part of Scripture. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. So tradition, that's why in particular Brother Jonathan loves to make changes. He doesn't want anything to become a tradition among us. Because we know, young men, what you do. Oh, Brother Jonathan, he used to do it exactly this way. And he was a good, godly man. And we don't want to change and be less godly than he was. And some of our brethren here are smiling because they've been in places where that's exactly what you would hear. It's not what Paul said. It's what Brother so-and-so did, who's only been... Dead and in the grave 20 years. Or maybe somebody who's been dead 150 years. I don't care. If I don't see it in the page of Scripture, it ain't required. And you may have an option of doing it one way or the other way, and God doesn't care in some cases. But if you start making those requirements, God's religion just went out the window. That's what the Lord Himself said. You're going to throw my religion out for yours. That's a threat. Excuse me, that's the enemy. What's another enemy? Popularity. Doing things to please other men. You know, let's take a market survey. Let's find out what our community likes. You know, let's see what doctrines they want. Let's see what kind of services they like. What kind of music do they like here? Maybe it's not the hard rock and roll. Maybe it's more just country western rock that they like here. Okay? Then they do other places. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? 
in Matthew chapter 7. Didn't he say to, to look for that narrow way? That straight, meaning like a straight jacket, narrow way that leads unto life. That everybody's following, right? Few there be that find it. For broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be. The popular way most often is the dead end. The more popular the way, the more you need to question What's wrong with this? It's an easy choice. It's an easy choice. I've got five, I've got, what's it, 1.1 billion people that think, you know, you know, and incense waving and, you know, in this big thing called St. Peter's Basilica. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. There's way too many people involved in that thing. How many people have anything like we do? How big are Baptists of any sort compared to the rest of the world's religion? Then you take that down to conservatives like Southern Baptists, right? And then, well, then you start taking out all the other things that we don't do. I mean, it gets pretty narrowed down, doesn't it? I mean, we have, if you're like me, you have a problem finding individual congregations, right, that you can think of that, yeah, they're probably in agreement with us on this, yeah. What's another enemy we have to put up with? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We've got to be careful out in the workplace, don't we? Because if these, there are folks out there, they have all sorts of ideas of how they ought to do things, right? That's not the context of that verse. Can somebody help me out? Does somebody, I know I'm pushing it now, does somebody, can you tell me where... Evil communications corrupt good manners. What book is that located in? First Corinthians. Can you tell me the chapter? Fifteen. Can some and it's smack dab in the middle. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three. What is the First Corinthians fifteen about? The resurrection. So you mean there's evil communications people can have about the resurrection? Yeah, there are a whole bunch of heretics in Corinth that said the resurrection's past. Oh, but Newell, this is a new... That's, that's back in Paul's day. Nobody believes that today, do they? Yes. Yes. There are people who will claim to be New Testament Christians who will have lengthy Bible studies that the end result is that their resurrection's past. And they can live a good life. They can give to the plate, into the box, sit in the pew... Say amen just like the rest of us. The devil himself. The devil himself. That's another enemy. He's really the one who helps support all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me Oops, I'm sorry. I think I'm in the wrong place. I'm in 1 Corinthians, and you'd be in 2 Corinthians 11. Pardon me. See, that's why you got to check me out. I could have done a whole sermon from there, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 11. Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly. See, he's, he's getting the place where he's getting... Well, he's being wise. Okay, He's having to defend his ministry in this second epistle to people he converted. And 
instructed them in Jesus Christ to start with. And he says, bear with me in my folly. And indeed, bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's showing the motive for why he's doing everything he's doing in these two epistles. Why he's going out of his way with all sorts of argumentation. Because he loves them and he wants to present them to Jesus Christ as a perfect church. A pure church. But, verse 3, I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, we've already mentioned that, right? So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Here's a congregation that can be corrupted. How? For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom ye have not preached, we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Hey, with all the trouble I've had with you folks, you could easily bear with somebody like this. And notice what he says. There's another Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, another one. There's a different spirit behind that Jesus. And he ain't the Holy Spirit. And he comes using another gospel. There's another Bible, another whole set of scriptures. Whether it's the actual scripture, but it's being rested and perverted, or a totally new version, doesn't matter. It's a departure from the gospel that was first taught them. He goes on and talks down here a while more, defending his ministry and referring to that. Come down to verse 13, where he goes back to these people he's talked about. These people that have preached a different gospel. For such are false apostles. They made themselves out to be apostles, but they were false. Deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. There are ministers who are the ministers of Satan, is what Paul is saying. They look right in many ways. They smell right. But you judge their doctrine, and their doctrine is against Scripture. It's against what Paul taught. It's against what James taught. It's against what Peter taught. It's against what John taught. And the motivating factor behind these guys is a spirit. The spirit of the devil. The devil makes himself as an angel of light. So it's no great thing that his ministers look like ministers of righteousness. Which they're not. That's one of the enemies we have to face. Spiritual enemies. Here's one. I almost use this passage as my jumping off. As this is what I was going to speak on. But it works good here anyway. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter five, uh, 5 and verse 12. Ignorance. Ignorance is an enemy. We've got to fight, brethren. Especially in our day and age. For when, for when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers... You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. 
For everyone that uses milk, and by that he means everyone who has to use milk all the time, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Are you ignorant? Are you a babe? Have you not exercised yourself in the word of righteousness so that you're able to handle it? You're likely to fall into all sorts of heresies. You're likely to be led aside by that guy that says there's no resurrection. Ignorance, being spiritually lazy and slothful. That's an enemy we've got to face and fight. Finally, the worst one is the judgment of God. Remember what the what Paul taught us in 2 Thessalonians about the man of sin, his coming. And in chapter 2, verse 9, where it tells us, even him whose working is after the even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivable deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them, those who don't love the truth, who don't want God's word, they will, he, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Right. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Brethren, if we don't love the right, if we don't love the word, if we don't love the Lord, He can send this as a judgment to us. What's our role? These are the enemies. What's the role? The church has a role. It's to protect and promote the truth among itself. Back over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Good verse for you to look at. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And that can be anything. That can be doctrinal. That can be practical. That can be a root of bitterness you allow with a brother or a sister. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you, you, members of congregations, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Brethren, this is not our brother sending out Proverbs to us. This is you and me talking to one another. This is you and me knowing each other's situation. This is you and me helping out, encouraging, rebuking. That whole range of things that we ought to be doing with one another. Loving, helping one another. Because it can spring up. It can spring up if we're not diligent. And it's a daily task. It's a daily task. Bishops, like our brother, it's easy enough what his job is. His job is to defend and teach the truth. Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9 tells us, if I can get there, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. That's a pastor's job. He's supposed to come up with the outlines like this. 
And he's supposed to be able to correct and instruct through the instruction those who have contrary doctrines and ideas about Scripture. Brethren, what do we do when we find somebody who won't be amenable to this? Titus, you're already there. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. And please, if some of you came from backgrounds like I did where heretic they think means he's damned and going to hell. They don't know their scripture. That's a big boogeyman they built up. A heretic is somebody who's got an opinion contrary to what the Bible teaches. That's it. I've been a heretic before. We've all been heretics before. We may be heretics right now. And it's by the preaching of the gospel, the study of the word, and having it preached to us, us meditating on it, reading it, can change our opinions to match it. And we no longer are heretics. But we're talking about here a heretic who's after he's had time of someone showing him the truth, of teaching him what the truth is in Scripture. He says, nah, I don't want anything to do with that. Hey, after appropriate amount of time of dealing with him, reject him. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. You don't labor forever with people. There's a reasonable amount of time. Men, we are to teach our wives. Over in 1 Corinthians 14, it tells us that women aren't supposed to speak out and be asking questions and taking leadership roles from an educational standpoint in a congregational assembly like this. But you know what they are to do? They're supposed to be question askers and not of the pastor. They're supposed to ask their husbands. Ladies, you got a question? You got something you're not sure why Jonathan preached something? Great! Ask that question of your husband. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Men, monkeys on our back. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing to make sure we know the word well enough that when our wife asks that question, oh yeah, honey, here, let me show you. Remember how pastor went over to this passage here. Well, you link in this passage over here that explains this part here. Oh, and you asked that question? Very good question. Turn back over to this chapter. That's what ought to be going on at home all the time, men. And then ladies, you've got a role. All of you that have children or grandchildren or have adopted any of the wonderful children in this congregation, you ought to be echoing that same message that you're getting from your husband or your father or whatever man in authority, you should be echoing that to the children. It says that over in 2 Timothy chapter 3.15. 2 Timothy? Is that teaching women? No, that's talking about Timothy and the unfeigned faith that was in him. You go back to the chapter 1, verse 5, it tells you where that unfeigned faith in Timothy came from. It came from his grandmother Eunice and his mother Lois. Did I get those right? I think I got them right. A grandmother and a mother invested time in young Timothy, whose father was a Greek, not a Jew. They knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They instructed Timothy. And Timothy, when Paul came along, you read, go back there and read in Acts. Paul came across where Timothy was. Hey, he brought that young man with him. He was a traveling companion with Paul. He was the darling of Paul. He was the one Paul could say, there's no other man that has the same love of Jesus Christ and you brethren like Timothy does. He's just like me in that regard. Except he's a very tender young man. 
His mother and his grandmother instructed him. So ladies, you've got a big role to play there too. You ought to be asking your husband questions. And men, you better have those answers ready. Because this is what we do as the pillar and ground of the truth. It's not Brother Jonathan's role outside of what he does here every Sunday and every Wednesday night. He gets up here and he teaches all of us. What are we doing with the rest of the time of the week with what he's taught us? See, I want to nail it down to that. He's given us material, brethren. What are we doing with it? If you've got women who are going off into things they don't know about, men, that's our fault. Are we going to do our jobs? This is what a church does. It doesn't say what a pastor does. This is, this is, I've laid out for you the different roles, haven't I, in the church? Ah, uh, there's other stuff here. How do you do it? You do it by proving all things by Scripture. References on that. Brethren, 1 Peter 3.15 says that you and I are supposed to have a reason of the hope that's within us. When somebody asks us of why do you live the way you do? Why do you have hope in a hopeless world? Why are you sitting under that awful manager and you're smiling? And you're serving him well. You're not backbiting on him. You're doing him. You're breaking your back to make sure he looks good. Even though he's flogging you. Why are you doing that? Because my, Jesus, my Lord Jesus Christ said. And you go from there. That's the context of us being willing to give an answer. We're suffering for righteousness sake. But we're doing it cheerfully. And people are going to ask you questions about that. So brethren, we all need to know our Bible. Why do we do what we do? Why do I live the life I live? I need to know that so I can tell somebody else about it. And not my opinion. A reason of the hope that's within me. It didn't say an emotion. It didn't say share with them Jesus. It said give them a reason. That means I ought to have some understanding of book, chapter, and verse so I can lay out to them. Here are the reasons why I believe what I believe. And why I live as I live. Brethren, that same passage I went to in Hebrews, it's beautiful. It's rebuking them because they're children. What's it telling them they ought to be? What should they be desiring to be? Teachers. Brethren, don't you want to be a teacher? Don't you want to teach other people the glorious things of God? What Jesus Christ has done for your soul? That's what we ought to strive to be. We ought to be doing teaching, not always having somebody have to teach us. We should be knowing the Scriptures well enough that we can teach others. Total confidence and devotion to Scripture is essential to keep the truth. What's one of our favorite verses? Uh, Psalm 119, 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be, and I every false way. But that's got to be more than just memorized. That's got to be a living reality in our lives. We have to test those who bring anything different. 1 John 4, 1. Try the spirits, whether they be of God. That's the loving disciple John. He said, try the spirits. Read on the next four or five verses. He's very tight in what he suggests you do to somebody who says, they, I believe in the Lord. Okay, well, what about this and this and this? You don't just accept it. You try it. You test it out. 
And then we've already seen, we've got to separate. We have to separate. We have to put distance between us and somebody who does not want to follow the truth. Again, why? Because it's the Lord's truth. Brethren, this is a church. If this is going to be a true church, as the Lord described it in His Word, we have to be that which holds up and supports the truth of God. In our lives, in the ministry of this congregation, in everything that we do and say, these things are important. May God help us that we may do our part, that we can do our duty in being that ground and pillar of the truth. Please join me in standing. I apologize for being 15 minutes older. over. Most gracious Father, we thank you for allowing us to have your precious truth. Amen. Father, help us not to take it for granted. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in the roles that you've called us to be as individuals and as a congregation to uphold the truth of Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with thy blessing, Father. Watch over and protect us. Bring us all safely back here. If you tarry, you're coming. We'd rather you come, Lord, and take us out. But if you don't this week, and you allow us both life and breath, bring us back safely, Lord, that we might once again come together to hear your word preached, to encourage one another, and to lift up Jesus Christ in our hearts and voices. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. 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 Lord is missed.